Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are beginning in Hosea chapter 5, and I think by now you all understand the methodology of what we're doing and why we're doing it. We're using Hosea as our basic outline for God's dealings with Israel once the deportations began, once we reached the point in the succession of kings in 2 Kings where God was getting ready to take Israel out of their land and take them into the Assyrian captivity. Right about that time, the first of the minor prophets were telling Israel that they needed to repent. There were prophets to Judah telling them to repent. Ultimately, Judah ends up going into the Babylonian captivity. And they are in the Babylonian captivity through the time that Babylon is conquered by the Medo-Persians. And even though Cyrus is the king of the Persians, the king that rules in that area initially is Darius the Mede or Darius the Mede. And it's during the reign of Darius the Mede that Zechariah starts talking about God's future plans for national Israel. And so we've just been kind of jumping around in the prophets a little bit and using Hosea as our outline in order to look at it. And the whole reason for doing it, the whole purpose to all of this, has been to demonstrate over and over again, repeatedly, practically ad nauseum, that the prophets all say the same thing over and over and over again. And so to ignore what the prophets have said is just willing ignorance and far too much of modern theology ignores completely what the prophets have said or says that everything we've been reading for weeks and weeks out of all these various prophets simply doesn't count anymore. God, once he got to the church and brought the Gentiles in, decided that all those promises and all those prophecies just simply don't count anymore. And I say, no fair. I say, you're not playing fair with the scripture if you do that. Now, tonight... By way of introduction, because you knew there would be one, and what I've said so far wasn't it. Ha-ha! <laughs> that was the preamble to the introduction. I am really amazed the more that we dig into the Bible and the more that we get our thinking about God straight, and by straight I mean the more we bring our thinking in line with what the Bible actually says, I am amazed at how different the God of the Bible is from the God of modern Christian thinking. It's no surprise to anybody when I say that the modern Christian church is biblically ignorant. But a consequence of that astounding biblical ignorance is that most people have no idea what God is actually like. And it extends far beyond things like we Calvinists who say, well, sovereign election is how people get saved. And people bristle at that idea because they don't know what the God of the Bible is like. 
And we say God is absolutely sovereign in the salvation of people, and he chooses and decides and did that before the foundation of the world. And people say, no, it can't be that way. That's not fair because they have no idea what the God of the Bible is actually like. If you were to ask, what shall we call them, your everyday run-of-the-mill standard church-going Bible ignorant quasi-Christian, that's what we're going to call them. I don't know if I can repeat that. But if you were to find those people and ask them, can God remove himself from people and hide himself from them even if they're looking for him? Well, the God of the Bible can and does, and we're going to bump into that tonight. But the God of modern Christendom? No, he can't. No, because their concept of God is that he's some kind of weakling. He's some sort of milk toast, insecure God who just desperately needs fellowship with human beings in order to feel good about himself. The concept, the modern concept of what God is like, is 180 degrees opposite the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is fully sufficient within himself, fully satisfied within himself, and existed forever before he ever made the planet or people. And while he existed in his perfect triunity, he wasn't lonely and he wasn't sad. And everything that he does, he does According again to the Bible, he does according to the counsel of his own will. He does whatever he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, however he wants to do it, as many times as he wants to do it, with whoever he wants to do it with, and you can't talk him into or out of doing or not doing whatever he chooses to do or not do. He's actually that completely, sovereignly independent. And yet human beings have this terrible characterization of God in their head where they think he's like us. And so they bring him down into very human characteristics and very human emotions and very human needs. And he's not like that. How often have we seen it now where he has said things like, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Or where he has said, who's going to build a house for me to dwell in? The heaven and the heaven of the heavens is all mine. Mm -hmm. And everything you could offer me, I made. The earth is just a footstool, and he does what he wants among the inhabitants of the earth and the armies of heaven, and no one can stay his hand, and no one can say, what doest thou? Good King James language there. Mm -hmm. Because he does whatever he wants to do. So... That's important to realize when we read this portion of Hosea because God is continuing, as he did in chapter 4, he is continuing through Hosea the prophet to lay out his case against national Israel. He's continuing to say, you are absolutely and completely guilty. Now, the other thing that I've really noticed in reading about how God actually is, how God actually works, and how different God actually is in the Bible than modern concepts of God. The second thing that really leaps out is the depth of human depravity and how truly sinful and evil sin is. Mm -hmm. Gala, there I just called Gala out, but Gala down in Texas 
sent me a note today via Facebook where she made that comment, you know, that most people don't recognize how evil sin really is. And I wrote back and said, but that's because people conceive of sin as simply being activity, that you're doing bad things as opposed to the biblical concept of sin, which is that sin is not what we do, it's what we are. We are sinful by nature. And therefore, the things that we do are things that are coming from a sinful person with a sinful heart, with sinful proclivities. And so the Bible asks questions like, can somebody like that suddenly be righteous? No. The question is, can a leopard change his spots? No. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? No. Which of you, Jesus says, by taking thought, can make yourself one cubit taller or add a day to your life? He so frequently went back to those same basic inabilities, inadequacies within human beings. Of course, the book of Job. By the time Job decides to stand up and say, if God was here, I'd demand of him and he'd answer me. And God does show up and says, who is this that darkens my counsel without knowledge? And then says, where were you when I made everything? And then the next several chapters, God goes through the litany of things that he and he alone does. He and he alone can do. And by the time he's done, Job rightly says, I repent in dust and ashes. I abhor myself. Because if you ever get a real sense of who the God of the Bible actually is, and you get a real sense of your depravity, then you'll see the distance between holiness and righteousness and the sin that permeates humankind. I wasn't as righteous as I thought I was. Nowhere near. I mean, God would be within his rights ever since the fall. He's within his rights to judge anyone he wants, anytime he wants, to any degree he wants, because everybody he's dealing with is sinful going out the gate. Babies are born liars, the Bible tells us. We're born with, the theological term is, original sin. That doesn't mean you've done something no one else has ever done. Wow, that was an original sin. Well done, Thaddeus. I don't think anyone expected that. What an original sin that was. No, it means the minute that you're born... Being human, you have that Adamic proclivity towards sin. You have that Adamic nature. You are a sinful being, and therefore the best you can do is sinful. Which is why, I know I've repeated this so many times, but I want to keep drilling these ideas into our heads, but that is why Isaiah would say, your best righteousness, altogether filthy rags. You, you got nothing. So here's the two big things I want to stress. First, from God's perspective, human beings by their very nature and character and the things that they do are depraved. And that word's going to come up tonight. God accuses Israel of not just doing bad things, but of being themselves depraved. That's an inward problem. That's not just you did some bad things. That's you are, in fact, so depraved. You are, in fact, so sinful that the things you do are simply an outgrowth of the fact that you're like that. 
And that's what people simply just don't get, or they reject, or they argue against, because they want to believe that there's at least some good in everyone. And there's just not. So once you get a hold of that, and then get a hold of where we began, that the God of the Bible is so different than modern Christianity represents him, then you get some sense of how genuinely ignorant we are of biblical things, because we don't know who God is and what God's like, and we don't know how deep our depravity and our sin is. So it's no wonder that people construct theologies of human capability and God's incapability to do things like turn away from somebody. Well, that's what we're going to see tonight, where God says, I'll withdraw myself from you. Okay, so that, that now was all introduction. That takes care of the preamble and the introduction, and I talked long enough for Micah to get here, so now, now we're okay. Chapter 5, Book of Hosea. God goes right after the leaders. He holds leaders responsible. He goes after priests. He goes after the house of Israel, and then he goes after the king. Because the king is supposed to be a representative of God to the nation and lead the people in the ways of God and the laws of God. And the priests are supposed to intercede between sinful men and God. And the prophets are the ones that communicate what God has said to the people. Hear this, O priests. Give heed, O house of Israel. Whenever you see that nomenclature, house of Israel, he's talking about the northern kingdom. He's talking about Ephraim. He's talking about Samaria. Give heed, O house of Israel. Listen, O house of the king. So this again is where he's taking the kings to task, that succession of terrible kings in the north. For judgment applies to you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah. Mizpah is a city in the south, just north, barely eight miles north of Jerusalem, its name actually means watchtower, and a net spread out on Tabor. And there are a couple different opinions about which Tabor, because there's a couple areas that might be Tabor. It might also be a reference to a mountain. But clearly what he's saying and what he's naming are particular areas in the northern kingdom. And the revolters have gone deep in depravity. But I will chastise all of them. So God is holding all Israel responsible. He's holding the king responsible. He's holding the priests responsible. He's holding everybody responsible. And notice what for. Not just for what they're doing, but for what they are. They're depraved. They've gone deep into depravity. This is why in the five points that we teach and believe... Whether or not you adhere to the five points of reform doctrine, you simply cannot get your Bible thinking and your Bible doctrine and your Bible theology straight if you don't start with humans are depraved. Because if you start with humans are capable, then everything else you think about God and man and the relationship between them will be colored by the fact that you think humans are capable. But if you understand human incapability and human depravity, 
then if you conclude that anybody is saved, you have to give all the credit to God and say humans are only saved because God was good to some people. It can't be anything the people did because the people are clearly depraved. So here God has now accused national Israel collectively from their leaders on down of being depraved. The revolters have gone deep in depravity, and I will chastise all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. In other words, I've seen everything you've done. I know exactly what you're up to. You haven't gotten away with anything. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. Look at that statement. Their deeds, their decisions, their choices, chasing after foreign gods, taking foreign lovers at that point has created such a rift between God and Israel that he's now saying, they can't come back to me. They're incapable in their depravity of coming back to me and making it okay. So what does that tell you about depravity? If God sees you as depraved, then he doesn't see anything within you that if you just fix, you can come back to him and make it okay. So then who has to make it okay? God. God has to do it. He has to do all of it because you can't do it because you're depraved. I know Ephraim, Israel's not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God. For a spirit of harlotry is within them. Notice again now, he's not saying they did stuff. He's saying they are away. There is a spirit within them, a spirit of rebellion. He referred to them as the revolters, the rebellious ones. And they're depraved, and there's a spirit of harlotry within them. They act this way because this is what they're like. You got that? When people email me, I can probably save myself a lot of email here. When people email me and they ask me questions about particular sins, the common one these days, of course, homosexuality. But sometimes it's, well, I've committed adultery or I've done whatever else. And, and they want me to break down the sin for them. They want me to say that something is more sinful than something else. They want me to categorize sin for them. But the truth of the matter is, and what I always respond is, what you did is an outgrowth of the fact that you are a sinner. You've got to get the big subject, the way you're describing yourself all too often, what people do, is they describe themselves as pretty good, and then they make a mistake. And they want to know, is God going to hold that mistake against me? When the fact is, you're no good. I almost threw an extra adjective in there. But you're no darn good. There's the clean version of it. But you're, but you're no good, and therefore, the homosexuality broke out. Therefore, the adultery broke out. Therefore, the lying, the thievery, the robbery broke out. Therefore, the hatred in your heart broke out. But those are all symptoms of the larger problem. The larger problem is you're depraved. 
And because you're depraved, you're going to act like a depraved person because you have that spirit of depravity within you. And far too often people think if we can just identify and categorize the sin, then if I just scrub up that sin, I'll be a little bit better in God's eyes. How do I just fix it? What if I just do something? What if I just... And you can't fix the offense that you've already caused by being less offensive. Do you see what I'm saying? The offense has happened. The encroachment on God has already occurred. You have already offended an infinitely righteous and holy God. And you can't fix that. He has to fix it. He has to be good and gracious and kind to you. Those things that you want so badly to categorize have to be holy and completely under the blood of Christ. They're either utterly fully paid at Calvary or you're going to pay for them. Either way, payment must be made to God. Restitution for that sin has to be made. So you can spend from now until your dying day sorting out your sins and trying to figure out which were the okay ones and which were the really bad ones. And none of that's going to help you at all because God doesn't judge you on the basis of. He's not looking at you and keeping track. He's not up there with an abacus keeping score on every person and how many sins they commit. You are already so depraved and so guilty that the things you do are simply an outgrowth of the fact that you are that bad. You got it? See the difference? Humans like to keep score. God says the things you're doing that you're keeping score about are simply an outgrowth of the fact that this is what you're like. And he's not judging you because of what you did. He's judging you because of what you're like. That's what he's saying to Israel. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the harlot. Israel has defiled itself. Their deeds will not allow them to return to their God, for a spirit of harlotry is within them, and they do not know the Lord. Moreover, the pride of Israel testifies against him. There's that pride thing again. Notice of all the many sins they've committed. And their harlotries, they're chasing after other gods, all that stuff. God finally narrows it down to one essential problem. Your problem is pride. That's your problem. You actually think that you can get away with this. You actually think that God doesn't care, or you think that God's not there, or that he's not watching, or that he doesn't realize. You actually think that maybe you could be good enough to make up for how bad you've been. Or you actually think that there's going to be enough sacrifices, enough prayers, enough religious activity, that you will obligate God to forgive you for the things that you already did. All of that comes from this this arrogance, this self-sufficiency, this pride that permeates human beings, the very essence of our sinfulness, the very core of our depravity. For me, the chief demonstration of how truly sinful we are is that we're prideful, is that we're arrogant. And it's one thing if my pride causes me to be unkind or encroach on Tom. But my encroachment is against a righteous, holy God. Why? Because I'm just that arrogant. I'm just that prideful (laughs) to think maybe I'll be the one that gets away with it. 
Or, because I'm human, I'll do that fist-shaking, I will not have this man to rule over me thing, where I'll make up my own mind, and I'll do my own thing, and I'll... I mentioned that a year ago or more, I had a conversation with a, a young woman who said to me that she really didn't understand why I thought that people ought to conform their lives and behavior to a book that was written by some guy thousands of years ago. That was the exact quote. A book written by some guy thousands of years ago. That was her description of the Bible. And that is the very essence of what I'm talking about. That's why I bring it up again, is that's the kind of pride that says, I am self-sufficient enough that I will sit in judgment on God and his word as opposed to understanding that God is a righteous and a holy eternal judge and that his word and his standards are what I will be judged by, I'll turn that all on its head and make myself the judge, and I will judge God's word, and I will ultimately judge God. And that's the way that the vast majority of human beings work and think. Well, that's the very essence of what pride is. Hubris, arrogance... And so he says, moreover, it is the pride of Israel that testifies against him. And Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also has stumbled with them. Just draw that picture in your head for a second. So you've got a guy who's stumbling, tripping, falling, heading face first into the dirt. And the whole time he has an ego about it. The whole time he thinks, I'm in charge here, and I won't let God tell me what to do, and I'll do whatever I want. Even as he's stumbling and falling. The essence of arrogance. They will go with their flocks and their herds, look at this, to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. We just read, they do not know God. Now they'll seek the Lord, and they will not find him, because he hath withdrawn from them. Okay, so where did we start tonight? I started tonight with the question, how do most people conceive of God? Most biblically ignorant, standard, everyday, run-of-the-mill Christian folk, what do they think about God? Well, they think that God is like a beggar, hat in hand, out there asking people to please accept him. Please make me your God. I'm lonely. I need you. Here he says, they'll go with their flocks and their herds to seek the Lord, but they won't find him. And then he explains why they won't find him, because he has withdrawn from them. So does your concept of God include the reality that God can withdraw himself from anyone he wants? Now, big picture again. If we really are as depraved, if we really are as egocentric as the Bible describes us, if we really are as sinful as the Bible says, and if God really is as sovereign, righteous, and holy as he is, and is under no compunction to obligate himself to anybody, if he has the ability to withdraw himself from people as a form of punishment... Well, then who has all the power? Who has all the authority? It's not us. And yet we in our ego, we in our pride, still think it's us. 
In fact, when we stand here and describe a God like that, there are people who will hear this and say, well, then I don't like your God. I don't accept that God. That's not what my God is like. Well, then your God is a God of your imagination. Because the God of the Bible can remove himself if he chooses to. Now, here again, consistently through the Bible, we see that one of the ways that God punishes people is that he withdraws his own presence. God withdrawing himself is a form of judgment against a people. And you see it right here. And I have contended for a while now that the reason that these terrible things are happening in our society, it's just so easy to look at what's going on. Even uh, people who are not particularly religious will admit that the society right now is just on this slippery slope, slippery cliff anymore. (laughs) You say, well, what happened? You know, it didn't used to be this way when I was young. I'm old enough now to say stuff like this. When I was young, when I was young, yeah, uh, we had a class in our high school called Bible is Literature. So you had kids walking up and down the hallways carrying their Bibles. I remember when I was in school in Texas that every day began with announcements and prayer over the PA. And it was Christian prayer. Okay, in my own lifetime, that has changed, and it has changed dramatically. At the same time that that is changing, that the Ten Commandments are taken down from the schools, Ten Commandments used to be up in our library. The more that God has extricated from our schools, from our educational institutions, the more that we extricate God from the marketplace of ideas, and the more we isolate God just to churches and not into the society at large, the worse the society is getting. I can connect the dots. That's not difficult. But if God is absolutely sovereign, I assume that the society is not capable of pushing him out if he's not willing to go. And as part of the judgment that America is under now, God is withdrawing his hand, including his hand of protection. We have been protected unlike any nation in the history of the world. And that is no longer the case. Because God has a history of being just like he's described here in Hosea 5. He is a God who is absolutely righteous, who calls people depraved, and who will withdraw himself. So that people can seek for him and not even find him. Because he's not willing to be found by them. Which means if you have found him, if you know anything about him, if you have approached him and been accepted, it has nothing to do with you. And since it has nothing to do with you, there is no basis for your ego there. There is no basis for your pride. There is only the glorification of the God who was so good to you that he called you to himself. You know, we're not going to get anywhere near the stuff I wanted to get to tonight, but that's okay. I'm in a preachy mood, so you're just, you're stuck with it. He said, arms akimbo. This is why I find so much of Arminian theology just so plain, flat, wrong. Because it does assume that the people who do know something about God know that because they did something. They chose. Mm -hmm. They decided. They accepted. 
they allowed. God wanted people to come to him. And so you get things like the the seeker-sensitive movement or seeker-sensitive theology. And yet here in uh, Hosea 5, we read, they will seek the Lord, but they will not find him because he has withdrawn himself from them. So God's not interested in seeker sensitivity. The only people who actually seek God are the people who God has called and is drawing. Those people will come most willingly to God. But no one ever obligated God through their will, their choice, their decision. It just, it doesn't happen. It's not in the Bible anywhere. It's theologically ignorant. It's theologically inconsistent. And if you, this has been my war cry tonight, hasn't it? If you know who God is based on what the Bible says about God, and if you know who we are based on what the Bible says about us, then you could never develop a theology that says God is up there waiting for you to choose him. If you stand face to face with what the word of God says about God, then you have to conclude that he in his utter and complete sovereignty and sufficiency doesn't need anybody. God to be God has no needs because if he had a need, he'd fulfill it. He'd satisfy himself because he's God. And yet there is so much theology based on the notion that God was either lonely or he had a need or he had some unfulfilled desire that could only be satisfied by people choosing to love him except nobody ever chose to love him. Human beings left to themselves chose to rebel. Mm-hmm. Right? right. Here, I'll make it real easy. Adam and Eve in the garden. Best possible environment. No temptations. Adam, one woman. There's no other women to mess around with. There's no movies not to go to. No internet not to fire up. There's no pornography not to look at. There's no, he has no temptations anywhere except one single temptation. Don't eat that. But you have plenty else to eat. You're not hungry. You have plenty of everything. You have dominion over the creation of God. You're in charge. You even get to name the animals. So there are no prohibitions against Adam's behavior or choices except one. And in that ideal and perfect environment, Adam and Eve chose to rebel. And yet we're supposed to believe that human beings living in 21st century America, (laughs) while we are inundated nonstop with temptations, so much so that we've actually dumbed down our concept of what we think a temptation is and most of the things that we encounter that truly are sinful and depraved and rebellious, we think aren't that bad. There's a certain movement against abortion. There are people who disagree with it, but it's still going on constantly all the time. And there's no outrage about it. Why? Because we've gotten used to it. We're just used to, and yet in an environment like that, that is saturated with sin and temptation, we're supposed to believe that some human being in the midst of all that went, I choose God. Didn't happen. Has never happened because the way God sees us is described right here in this text. Rebellious. Depraved. 
spiritually corrupted by pride and ego. And as a consequence here, speaking to Israel, God says that he can be the very way that most modern Christians say he can't be. He says that they'll look for him and they won't find him and he'll withdraw himself from them. Because he can be like that and has a history of being like that. And we have to adjust our thinking about God to be comprehensive of the God of the Bible. Because, big picture again, because if you ever get that reality, if you ever get that, how do I put this? Okay, so every analogy breaks down at some point. But, but let's say that I have something that April really wants. I don't know what that thing might be. Cake, I have cake. Maybe April wants cake, maybe she doesn't. I have no idea. And so I have something that April really, really wants. And, and I give some to Tyler. And I give some to Josiah. I give Dwight big old piece of cake. Right? Mm. <laughs> Rubbing his hands with glee. Am I under any obligation to give April a piece of cake, even though I've given other people pieces of cake? No, it's my cake. It's still my cake, right? I can still do whatever I want with my cake. My cake. I can do whatever I want. Okay, the whole of creation belongs to God is my point. I just equated me and cake to God with his creation. The whole of creation belongs to God, and he is under no obligation to anybody to do anything other than what he is pleased to do. He does only those things that are in accordance with his good pleasure. He does whatever he wants to do, and he's always pleased with what he does. He's under no obligation, and he's like this. He's like this. He will hide himself and withdraw himself from people because of their sin, rebellion, depravity. That's what he's like. And then some people end up adopted by him, brought into his presence, forgiven, ever loved, and they will stand in his presence in glory, eternally joyful, eternally praising him, that can't, that can't have anything to do with the person. It just can't. It can only be God who chose to do that. It can only be God choosing to give Dwight that cake he wants so badly. You'd rather have eternal life? Good exchange there. Wise man. But do you understand my point? The person who owns it is the one who gets to decide how it's distributed. We get that in all human relationships. But that's also the way it is with God. Heaven is his throne room. He says who comes in. Earth is his footstool. He's not impressed. And yet we're so egocentric, we actually think it's all about us. But you know, I think the world really doesn't know what God has asked of the Israelites and how they failed from it and how severely he punished them. And will punish. It's not over yet. No, and it's been going on for all these years. It's been going on for all these years. And since you say that, Gladys, and it's a very good point. God held Judah even more responsible 
because they witnessed how God punished the northern kingdom. So now he has punished both the northern and the southern kingdom. Shouldn't the rest of us then be responsible for what we know about God in the way that he has dealt with Israel? That's right. And yet how massive is the ignorance? People have no idea. They don't know. Okay, we've got to wrap it up. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt treacherously against the Lord. Look at that language. It's not just, well, they fell. Well, they sinned. Well, they, ah, they tried. No, you, you chased after other gods. You broke my law. I chose you as a unique and a separate people. I gave you my standards. I have covenants and promises with you. And you chased after other gods. You went to whoring. You dealt treacherously with me. For they have borne illegitimate children. Now the new moon will devour them with their land. So blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound an alarm at Beth-Avon. Behind you, Benjamin, Ephraim will become a desolation in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure. Okay, so God has now said, what I'm telling you is the absolute truth. What I'm telling you about Israel is sure, definite. And Ephraim is going to become a desolation in the day that I rebuke them. That has happened. They've been scattered ever since that rebuke. Okay, now we have no problem with that part of God's dealings with Israel. We have no problem in as much as we know it's true, because we know it's historic fact. Even secular history testifies that this is a fact. This happened. The same God who says, among the tribes of Israel, I declare what is sure, is the same one who's made all the other promises that we've read, where among Israel, he has promised to regather them and reestablish them and plant them back in their land. Is that also sure? Because the first part of the equation, he has already accomplished factually, literally, in time. Then he makes equally factual, literal, in-time promises, even end-time promises concerning Israel, and for some reason that's where so many people go, no, that part's not true. (laughs) Now think about the arrogance again. This is really all about human arrogance and pride tonight. Think about the arrogance that says, I will judge the Bible, I'll be the judge of God, and if God says that he has an everlasting promise and covenant and love for national Israel, I'll be the judge and say, no, he doesn't. How arrogant is that? You don't have the right. You don't have the wherewithal. You don't have the standing to say God's wrong and you're right. I don't care what your theological background is. I don't care what your denomination says. I don't care... How many bad teachers you had that taught you the wrong stuff? Either the Bible's true or it's not. And if it's true, and if it's accurate, and if it is the word of God, then God's not done with Israel. There's a lot still to be done. As surely as he is going to rebuke them, as surely as he is going to punish them, equally surely he is going to gather them and establish them. Anyway, verse 10, let's wrap this up for the night. The princes of Judah have become like those who move a boundary. That was one of the rules, one of the basic 
rules in the 613 was once God establishes the lines, the boundaries of a land, once he says what every tribe gets and what every family gets, that's a permanent dispensation by God of land allotments. And there were boundary stones. And people would sneak out and move the boundary stones to give themselves more land, more room to farm, more land for their animals. But God was so sure about this is my land, so I allot it how I want to who I want. It all went back to the original boundaries. If you sold your land or leased it off to somebody else, year of Jubilee, it goes back to the original allotments that God laid out. So now he says... The princes of Judah, the very kings, the rulers of Judah are like thieves. They're like one who moves a boundary. And on them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's commands. Okay, so how much does God like it when human beings get together as a group and say, you know all that God stuff? Let's not worry about that. Let's make our own rules. We'll make our own standards. We'll set up our own parameters for societal cooperation. We'll decide for ourselves how we'll live. Right here, God says that Ephraim was going to be oppressed and crushed in judgment because Ephraim was determined to follow man's commands, their own commands. They'll make up their own way. They'll do it their own way. And God's going to punish them for it. Has God changed? No. God's standards changed? No. Has any of God's standards bent at all? Same God. Same God. And remember, with God, it's an all or nothing at all game. Mm -hmm. It's perfect righteousness or it's eternal condemnation. Mm -hmm. And there's no gray area in between. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to follow man's command. Therefore, I'm like a moth to Ephraim. We don't get that anymore because we have sprays and mothballs and all that stuff. But if you were living in the Middle East and a swarm of moths came in, they could get into everything and destroy everything and destroy clothing. And remember, most folk only had one cloak. And that cloak kept the sun off you during the day and it kept you warm during the night when the temperatures would drop in that desert region. And if moths came in and destroyed your clothing, your cloak, this is a bad thing for you, which is why Jesus would talk about where moth and rust corrupt. He says, I'll be like a moth to Ephraim. I'm just going to come in and destroy things. I'll be like rottenness to the house of Judah. Does your concept of God allow him to talk like that? I'll be like a destroyer. I'll be like a rottenness. I will wreck everything they have. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim, rather than run to God, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. But he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I will carry away and there will be none to deliver. It's God talking about himself. 
We love it when God says, I'm merciful and I'm kind and I'm gracious. And we immediately glom onto that, grab it and say, yes, that's the God I like. That merciful and kind and gracious and long-suffering and that one that really puts up with me, I really like it when he talks that way. That's the very same God who says, I'll be like a lion and I will tear you to pieces. Remember, there is this thing coming up. We're going to start talking about it on Sunday mornings. There's this moment coming called the day of the Lord. And as we look at the Old Testament descriptions of it, as we move into the Matthew 24 stuff, we're going to see that God over and over and over again describes himself as a one who brings a level of destruction, a level of trouble, a level of pain, unlike anything the world has ever seen. But God takes credit for it. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of the Lord's wrath. It's the day of the Lord's vengeance. Because our God is indeed righteous and holy and sovereign, and therefore he will defend his righteousness and his holiness against all of his enemies. And we don't think of him that way. If we ever did think of him that way, we'd get on our face in front of him. But is America on their face? No. We're too busy dancing in the streets, saying, look at us. We know what we're doing. We're in charge. We'll throw him out. We don't need him. I'm not going to have him rule over me. We don't need that Bible thing. And that whole religious thing is fine if you keep it in its context, which means Sunday morning inside church buildings with the door shut and don't let it bleed out into the streets. We don't want to hear any of that stuff. That's the arrogance of human beings against a God who talks like this. I, even I, will tear to pieces and go away. I'll carry you away and there'll be none to deliver. By the way, that's a historic truth. When he took the northern tribes, house of Israel, into Assyria, did they have a choice? Mm -mm. And what did he use? He used the armies of Assyria and the power of Assyria to overwhelm Israel. And yet God said, I did it. That's me. That's my judgment. I'm doing that. But I use the means of foreign armies. So let's think again. Okay, so God seems to be removing himself from our modern current society. And what are we hearing about all the time? That our enemies are arming up and getting ready. And what are we doing? Decreasing the size of our military and using it as a social experiment so that we can advance the transgender agenda mm -hmm. we're insane anyway <laughs> I will go away look at that I will go away I will go away this is the same God who said they'll seek me and they won't find me because I've withdrawn from them this same God says, I'll tear you to pieces and I'll go away. I'll carry away. There'll be none to deliver you. And I will go away and return to my place. I can always go back to heaven. I'll just go back to heaven and I'll just leave you in your misery. Because I'm God and I can do that. Until, oh good, the word until. This chapter is such a dark chapter and it ends on such a high note. Until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they will earnestly seek me. Okay, that's why the affliction. That's the whole point of the affliction. The affliction that he's bringing on to Israel is not for the purpose of scattering them for good, destroying them completely, and being done with it. 
That's not the point. Because they're his chosen people, because they're his covenant people, because he elected them out of all the nations of the earth, he's going to afflict them for the purpose of bringing them to repentance. This, again, is how God works. The same God who is perfectly willing to afflict is the same God who will remain faithful to his people. And, of course, we know the end of the story. We've seen it time and time again that God is ultimately going to restore Israel. But when and how? He's going to do it when they recognize their sinfulness and repent. Then they're going to seek for him earnestly. And then he will call them back to himself, establish them. What did we see last week? A nation born in a day. He's going to establish them back in Jerusalem, set up David's greater son, and they're going to be the kingdom that he always deigned for them to be. But they have to go through this process first. Now, there are obviously parallels. When did you learn more about faithfulness to God? When things were good or when it was difficult? Because this is, again, how God works. God knows what he needs to do to you, how he needs to afflict you, what he needs to take you through to make you reach the point of dependence on him, repentance of your ego and rebellion against him, and your recognition that it's all about him. It's all for his glory and that if he doesn't help you, there is no help. He already said it to Israel and Judah. He said, there's no help. There's no cure. You've been afflicted in such a way they ran to the foreign kings. They ran to the king of Assyria. Help us. And he said, he can't help you because there's no human that can help you. You have a sin problem. You have a deep-rooted spiritual problem. Worse than any cancer. Worse than any physical disease because a physical disease can only kill your body. But God can send you body and spirit into hell forever. And that's your real problem. And most people go through their whole life filling up their time with nonsense and trivia so that they never have to think about the big problem, the big issue, which is you're going to stand before God and he's a righteous judge. Yes. And you've got to think about that. You've got to consider that. And you've got to consider it before you're standing in front of the throne. And if he loves you, if you belong to him, if he has chosen you, if he has known you since before the foundation of the world, he will make sure that you stand in front of him accepted in the beloved one. And the way he will do that is by producing faith and confidence during this lifetime and repentance. And he doesn't just tap you on the head and make you a faithful, repentant believer. He takes you through trials. He takes you through tests. He takes you through this life. So that by the time you get out of here, you're faithfully and hopefully and joyfully looking forward to going home. If everything in this life and on this planet was great all the time, you wouldn't want to go. I can't wait to go. I can't wait to go be in his presence. Enough with the afflictions. And I have it pretty good. But I'm tired of it. And I can't wait to stand in his presence. I can't wait to hear whatever words he chooses to say that end with, come on in. Mm -hmm. Everything else will be introduction, but come on in. I, I can't wait. Enter into the glory that God has prepared for you since before the foundation of the world. Come be joint heir with my son. I'll even take well done, good and faithful servant. 
anything that ends in positive, I can't wait. But it'll be because while I was here, he afflicted me. He trained me. He taught me. And that is the same thing, the same paradigm, the same storyline that he's working out in history with national Israel. And if he would do it for me, for my ultimate good, I have no problem with the idea that he'll do it for Israel for their ultimate good. Because all things do work together for good. I mean like all things. I mean like the course of human history for thousands of years. I mean like scattering people and losing their identity for thousands of years so that he can call them back and collect them and stamp them in the forehead so that he can put them back in their land so he can be their God and they can be his people. And if that's the course of all human history since the beginning to the end, it's still all things working together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Human history is playing out according to his purpose for his glory, according to what he chooses to do. So what are you going to do? Well, you get in line with that. Quit bucking against it. Quit rebelling against it and just recognize that the sovereign is in charge. And that he is good and he is gracious and he is kind. But through that grace and that love and that kindness, he may also afflict you for your good. Comments? Anything? I feel, and, and I... I feel guilty about it, but I feel now like I owe April cake, <laughs> and I don't, and I don't know what to do about that. I, you created guilt where there is no guilt. I know, I know. I sort of created my own guilt vortex up here, and uh, I, I will do what needs to be done to remedy that. Okay. Anything? We're good. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.